Chapter Twenty One of the Leavenworth Case by Anna Catherine Green. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter Twenty One A Prejudice. True, I talk of dreams which are the children of an idle brain begot of nothing but vain fantasy. Romeo and Juliet. For one moment I sat a prey to superstitious horror, then my natural incredulity asserting itself, I looked up and remarked, "'You say that all this took place the night previous to the actual occurrence?' He bowed his head. "'For a warning,' he declared. "'But you did not seem to take it as such?' "'No. I am subject to horrible dreams. I thought but little of it in a superstitious way, till I looked next day upon Mr. Leavenworth's dead body.' I do not wonder you behaved strangely at the inquest. Ah, sir, he returned with a slow, sad smile, no one knows what I suffered in my endeavours not to tell more than I actually knew, irrespective of my dream, of this murder and the manner of its accomplishment. You believe, then, that your dream foreshadowed the manner of the murder as well as the fact? I do. It is a pity it did not go a little further, then, and tell us how the assassin escaped from, if not how he entered, a house so securely fastened. His face flushed. That would have been convenient, he repeated. Also, if I had been informed where Hannah was, and why a stranger and a gentleman should have stooped to the committal of such a crime. Seeing that he was nettled, I dropped my bantering vein. "'Why do you say a stranger?' I asked. "'Are you so well acquainted with all who visit that house "'as to be able to say who are and who are not strangers to the family?' "'I am well acquainted with the faces of their friends, "'and Henry Clavering is not amongst the number. "'But—' "'Were you ever with Mr. Leavenworth?' I interrupted. "'When he has been away from home, in the country, for instance, "'or upon his travels?' "'No.' "'But the negative came with some constraint.' "'Yet I suppose he was in the habit of absenting himself from home?' "'Certainly.' "'Can you tell me where he was last July, and he and the ladies?' "'Yes, sir, they went to R, the famous watering-place. You know.' "'Ah!' he cried, seeing a change in my face. "'Do you think he could have met them there?' I looked at him for a moment, then, rising in my turn, stood level with him, and exclaimed, "'You are keeping something back, Mr. Harwell.' You have more knowledge of this man than you have hitherto given me to understand. What is it?" He seemed astonished at my penetration, but replied, "'I know no more of the man than I have already informed you, but—'and a burning flush crossed his face—'If you are determined to pursue this matter—and he paused with an inquiring look—'I am resolved to find out all I can about Henry Clavering,' was my decided answer. Then said he, I can tell you this much. Henry Clavering wrote a letter to Mr. Leavenworth a few days before the murder, which I have some reason to believe produced a marked effect upon the household. And folding his arms, the secretary stood quietly awaiting my next question. How do you know? I asked. I opened it by mistake. I was in the habit of reading Mr. Leavenworth's business letters, and this, being from one unaccustomed to write to him, lacked the mark which usually distinguished those of a private nature. "'And you saw the name of Clavering?' "'I did. 
Henry Ritchie Clavering.' "'Did you read the letter?' I was trembling now. The secretary did not reply. "'Mr. Harwell,' I reiterated, "'this is no time for false delicacy. Did you read that letter?' "'I did, but hastily, and with an agitated conscience.' "'You can, however, recall its general drift.' "'It was some complaint in regard to the treatment received by him at the hand of one of Mr. Leavenworth's nieces. I remember nothing more.' "'Which niece?' "'There were no names mentioned.' "'But you inferred—' "'No, sir, that is just what I did not do. I forced myself to forget the whole thing.' "'And yet you say it produced an effect upon the family?' I can see now that it did. None of them have ever appeared quite the same as before. Mr. Harwell, I gravely continued, when you are questioned as to the receipt of any letter by Mr. Leavenworth, which might seem in any manner to be connected with this tragedy, you denied having seen any such. How was that? Mr. Raymond, you are a gentleman, have a chivalrous regard for the ladies. Do you think you could have brought yourself— even if in your secret heart you considered some such result possible, which I am not ready to say I did, to mention at such a time as that the receipt of a letter complaining of the treatment received from one of Mr. Leavenworth's nieces as a suspicious circumstance worthy to be taken into account by a coroner's jury? I shook my head. I could not but acknowledge the impossibility. What reason had I for thinking that letter was one of importance? I knew of no Henry Ritchie Clavering. And yet you seem to think it was. I remember you hesitated before replying. It is true, but not as I should hesitate now, if the question were put to me again. Silence followed these words, during which I took two or three turns up and down the room. This is all very fanciful, I remarked laughing in the vain endeavour to throw off the superstitious horror his words had awakened. He bent his head in assent. "'I know it,' said he. "'I am practical myself in broad daylight, and recognise the nimsiness of an accusation based upon a poor, hard-working secretary's dream as plainly as you do. This is the reason I desired to keep from speaking at all. But, Mr. Raymond—' and his long, thin hand fell upon my arm with a nervous intensity which gave me almost the sensation of an electrical shock. If the murderer of Mr. Leavenworth is ever brought to confess his deed, mark my words, he will prove to be the man of my dream. I drew a long breath. For a moment his belief was mine, and a mingled sensation of relief and exquisite pain swept over me as I thought of the possibility of Eleanor being exonerated from crime only to be plunged into fresh humiliation and deeper abysses of suffering. "'He stalks the streets in freedom now,' the secretary went on, as if to himself, "'even dares to enter the house he has so woefully desecrated. But justice is justice, and sooner or later something will transpire which will prove to you that a premonition so wonderful as that I received had its significance that the voice calling Truman, Truman, was something more than the empty utterances of an excited brain, that it was justice itself calling attention to the guilty. I looked at him in wonder. Did he know that the officers of justice were already upon the track of this same clavering? 
I judged not from his look, but felt an inclination to make an effort and see. "'You speak with strange conviction,' I said, "'but in all probability you are doomed to be disappointed. So far as we know, Mr. Clavering is a respectable man.' He lifted his hat from the table. "'I do not propose to denounce him. I do not even propose to speak his name again. I am not a fool, Mr. Raymond. I have spoken thus plainly to you only in explanation of last night's most unfortunate betrayal, and while I trust you will regard what I have told you as confidential, I also hope you will give me credit for behaving, on the whole, as well as could be expected under the circumstances." And he held out his hand. "'Certainly,' I replied, as I took it. Then, with a sudden impulse to test the accuracy of this story of his, inquired if he had any means of verifying his statement of having had this dream at the time spoken of, that is, before the murder, and not afterwards. "'No, sir. I know myself that I had it the night previous to that of Mr. Leavenworth's death, but I cannot prove the fact.' "'Did not speak of it next morning to any one?' "'Oh, no, sir. I was scarcely in a position to do so.' "'Yet it must have had a great effect upon you.' unfitting you for work. "'Nothing unfits me for work,' was his bitter reply. "'I believe you,' I returned, remembering his diligence for the last few days. "'But you must at least have shown some traces of having passed an uncomfortable night. Have you no recollection of any one speaking to you in regard to your appearance the next morning?' "'Mr. Leavenworth may have done so. No one else would be likely to notice.' There was sadness in the tone and my own voice softened as I said, "'I shall not be at the house to-night, Mr. Harwell, nor do I know when I shall return there. Personal considerations keep me from Miss Leavenworth's presence for a time, and I look to you to carry on the work we have undertaken without my assistance, unless you can bring it here. I can do that. I shall expect you then to-morrow evening.' "'Very well, sir,' and he was going, when a sudden thought seemed to strike him. "'Sir,' he said, as we do not wish to return to this subject again, and as I have a natural curiosity in regard to this man, would you object to telling me what you know of him? You believe him to be a respectable man. Are you acquainted with him, Mr. Raymond? I know his name and where he resides. And where is that? In London. He is an Englishman. Ah, he murmured, with a strange intonation. Why do you say that? He bit his lip, and looked down, then up, finally fixed his eyes on mine, and returned with marked emphasis. "'I used an exclamation, sir, because I was startled.' "'Startled?' "'Yes. You say he is an Englishman. Mr. Leavenworth had the most bitter antagonism to the English. It was one of his marked peculiarities. He would never be introduced to one if he could help it.' It was my turn to look thoughtful. "'You know,' continued the secretary, "'that Mr. Leavenworth was a man who carried his prejudices to the extreme. He had a hatred for the English race amounting to mania. If he had known the letter I have mentioned was from an Englishman, I doubt if he would have read it. He used to say he would sooner see a daughter of his dead before him than married to an Englishman.' I turned hastily aside to hide the effect which this announcement made upon me. "'You think I am exaggerating,' he said. "'Ask Mr. Veeley.' "'No,' I replied. "'I have no reason for thinking so.' 
"'He had doubtless some cause for hating the English with which we are unacquainted,' pursued the secretary. "'He spent some time in Liverpool when young, and had, of course, many opportunities for studying their manners and character.' And the secretary made another movement, as if to leave. But it was my turn to detain him now. "'Mr. Harwell, you must excuse me. You have been on familiar terms with Mr. Leavenworth for so long—' "'Do you think that, in the case of one of his nieces, say, desiring to marry a gentleman of that nationality, his prejudice was sufficient to cause him to absolutely forbid the match?' "'I do.' I moved back. I had learned what I wished, and saw no further reason for prolonging the interview. End of chapter 21 Chapter Twenty Two of the Leavenworth Case by Anna Catherine Green. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter Twenty Two Patchwork. Come, give us a taste of your quality. Hamlet. Starting with the assumption that Mr. Clavering, in his conversation of the morning, had been giving me, with more or less accuracy, a detailed account of his own experience and position regarding Eleanor Leavenworth, I asked myself what particular facts it would be necessary for me to establish in order to prove the truth of this assumption, and found them to be, one, that Mr. Clavering had not only been in this country at the time designated, but that he had been located for some little time at a watering-place in New York State, two, that this watering-place should correspond to the one in which Miss Eleanor Leavenworth was staying at the same time. 3. That they had been seen while there to hold more or less communication. 4. That they had both been absent from town, at lawn one time, long enough to have gone through the ceremony of marriage at a point twenty miles or so away. 5. That a Methodist clergyman, who had since died, lived at that time within a radius of twenty miles of said watering-place. I next asked myself how I was to establish these acts. Mr. Clavering's life was as yet too little known to me to offer me any assistance, so leaving it for the present I took up the thread of Eleanor's history, and found that at the time given me she had been in R, a fashionable watering-place in this state. Now, if this was true, and my theory correct, he must have been there also. To prove this fact became consequently my first business. I resolved to go to R on the morrow. But before proceeding in an undertaking of such importance, I considered it expedient to make such inquiries, and collect such facts as the few hours I had left to work in rendered possible. I went first to the house of Mr. Grice. I found him lying upon a hard sofa in the bare sitting-room I have before mentioned, suffering from a severe attack of rheumatism. His hands were done up in bandages, and his feet encased in multiple folds of dingy red shawl, which looked as if it had been through the wars. Greeting me with a short nod that was both a welcome and an apology, he devoted a few words to an explanation of his unwanted position and then, without further preliminaries, rushed into the subject which was uppermost in both our minds, by inquiring, in a slightly sarcastic way, if I was very much surprised to find my bird flown when I returned to the Hoffman house that afternoon. 
"'I was astonished to find you allowed him to fly at this time,' I replied. "'From the manner in which you requested me to make his acquaintance, I supposed you considered him an important character in the tragedy which has just been enacted.' "'And what makes you think I don't?' "'Oh, the fact that I let him go off so easily. That's no proof. I never fiddle with the brakes till the car starts downhill. But let that pass for the present.' "'Mr. Clavering, then, did not explain himself before going?' "'That is a question which I find it exceedingly difficult to answer. Hampered by circumstances, I cannot at present speak with the directness which is your due, but what I can say I will. Know, then, that, in my opinion, Mr. Clavering did explain himself in an interview with me this morning. But it was done in so blind a way, it will be necessary for me to make a few investigations before I shall feel sufficiently sure of my ground to take you into my confidence. He has given me a possible clue. "'Wait,' said Mr. Grice. "'Does he know this? Was it done intentionally and with sinister motive, or unconsciously and in plain good faith?' "'In good faith, I should say.' Mr. Grice remained silent for a moment. "'It is very unfortunate you cannot explain yourself a little more definitely,' he said at last. "'I am almost afraid to trust you to make investigations, as you call them, on your own hook. You are not used to the business, and will lose time, to say nothing of running upon false scents and using up your strength on unprofitable details. You should have thought of that when you admitted me into partnership. And you absolutely insist upon working this mine alone? Mr. Grice, the matter stands just here. Mr. Clavering, for all I know, is a gentleman of untarnished reputation. I am not even aware for what purpose you set me upon his trail. I only know that in thus following it, I have come upon certain facts that seem worthy of further investigation. Well, well, you know best. But the days are slipping by. Something must be done, and soon. The public are becoming clamorous. I know it, and for that reason I have come to you for such assistance as you can give me at this stage of the proceedings. You are in possession of certain facts relating to this man which it concerns me to know, or your conduct in reference to him has been purposeless. Now, frankly, will you make me master of those facts? In short, tell me all you know of Mr. Clavering, without requiring an immediate return of confidence on my part. That is asking a great deal of a professional detective. I know it, and under other circumstances I should hesitate long before preferring such a request, but as things are, I don't see how I am to proceed in the matter without some such concession on your part. At all events, wait a moment. Is not Mr. Clavering the lover of one of the young ladies? Anxious as I was to preserve the secret of my interest in that gentleman, I could not prevent the blush from rising to my face at the suddenness of this question. "'I thought as much,' he went on. "'Being neither a relative nor acknowledged friend, I took it for granted he must occupy some such position as that in the family.' 
"'I do not see why you should draw such an inference,' said I, anxious to determine how much he knew about him. "'Mr. Clavering is a stranger in town, has not even been in this country long, has indeed had no time to establish himself upon any such footing as you suggest.' "'This is not the only time Mr. Clavering has been in New York. He was here a year ago, to my certain knowledge.' "'You know that?' "'Yes.' how much more do you know? Can it be possible I am groping blindly about for facts which are already in your possession? I pray you listen to my entreaties, Mr. Grice, and acquaint me at once with what I want to know. You will not regret it. I have no selfish motive in this matter. If I succeed, the glory shall be yours. If I fail, the shame of the defeat shall be mine." "'That is fair,' he muttered. "'And how about the reward?' My reward will be to free an innocent woman from the imputation of crime which hangs over her." This assurance seemed to satisfy him. His voice and appearance changed. For a moment he looked quite confidential. "'Well, well,' said he, "'and what is it you want to know?' "'I should first like to know how your suspicions came to light on him at all. What reason had you for thinking a gentleman of his bearing and position, was in any way connected with this affair. "'That is a question you ought not to be obliged to put,' he returned. "'How so?' "'Simply because the opportunity of answering it was in your hands before ever it came into mine.' "'What do you mean?' "'Don't you remember the letter, mailed in your presence, by Miss Mary Leavenworth, during your drive from her home to that of her friend in Thirty-seventh Street? On the afternoon of the inquest? Yes. Uh, certainly, but you never thought to look at its superscription before it was dropped into the box? I had neither opportunity nor right to do so. Was it not written in your presence? It was and you never regarded the affair as worth your attention? However I may have regarded it, I did not see how I could prevent Miss Leavenworth from dropping a letter into a box if she chose to do so. That is because you are a gentleman. Well, it has its disadvantages," he muttered broodingly. But you, said I, how came you to know anything about this letter? Ah. I see. Remembering that the carriage in which we were riding at the time had been procured for us by him, the man on the box was in your pay, and informed, as you call it. Mr. Grice winked at his muffled toes mysteriously. That is not the point, he said. Enough that I heard that a letter, which might reasonably be proved to be of some interest to me, had been dropped at such an hour into the box on the corner of a certain street. That coinciding in the opinion of my informant, I telegraphed to the station connected with that box to take note of the address of a suspicious-looking letter about to pass through their hands on the way to the general post-office, and following up the telegram in person, found that a curious epistle addressed in lead pencil and sealed with a stamp, had just arrived. 
the address of which I was allowed to see. And which was? Henry R. Clavering, Hoffman House, New York. I drew a deep breath. And so that is how your attention first came to be directed to this man? Yes. Strange. But go on. What next? Why, next I followed up the clue by going to the Hoffman House and instituting inquiries. I learned that Mr. Clavering was a regular guest of the hotel, that he had come there direct from the Liverpool steamer about three months since, and, registering his name as Henry R. Clavering, Esquire, London, had engaged a first-class room which he had kept ever since that although nothing definite was known concerning him, he had been seen with various highly respectable people, both of his own nation and ours, by all of whom he was treated with respect, and lastly, that while not liberal, he had given many evidences of being a man of means. So much done, I entered the office, and waited for him to come in in the hope of having an opportunity to observe his manner when the clerk handed him that strange-looking letter from Mary Leavenworth. And did you succeed? No. An awkward gawk of a fellow stepped between us just at the critical moment and shut off my view. But I heard enough that evening from the clerk and servants of the agitation he had shown on receiving it to convince me I was upon a trail worth following. I accordingly put on my men, and for two days Mr. Clavering was subjected to the most rigid watch a man ever walked under. But nothing was gained by it. His interest in the murder, if interest at all, was a secret one, and though he walked the streets, studied the papers, and haunted the vicinity of the house in Fifth Avenue, he not only refrained from actually approaching it, but made no attempt to communicate with any of the family. Meanwhile you crossed my path, and with your determination incited me to renewed effort. Convinced from Mr. Clavering's bearing, and the gossip I had by this time gathered in regard to him, that no one short of a gentleman and a friend could succeed in getting at the clue of his connection with this family, I handed him over to you, and found me a rather unmanageable colleague." Mr. Grice smiled very much, as if a sour plum had been put in his mouth, but made no reply, and a momentary pause ensued. "'Did you think to inquire,' I asked at last, "'if anyone knew where Mr. Clavering had spent the evening of the murder?' "'Yes, but with no good result.' It was agreed that he went out during the evening, also that he was in his bed in the morning when the servant came in to make his fire. But further than that no one seemed posted. So that, in fact, you gleaned nothing that would in any way connect this man with the murder, except his marked and agitated interest in it, and the fact that a niece of the murdered man had written a letter to him. That is all. Another question. Did you hear in what manner and at what time he procured a newspaper that evening? No. I only learned that he was observed by more than one to hasten out of the dining-room with the post in his hand, 
and go immediately to his room without touching his dinner. Hm. That does not look. If Mr. Clavering had had a guilty knowledge of the crime, he would either have ordered dinner before opening the paper, or having ordered it, he would have eaten it. Then you do not believe from what you have learned that Mr. Clavering is the guilty party? Mr. Grice shifted uneasily, glanced at the papers protruding from my coat-pocket, and exclaimed, "'I am ready to be convinced by you that he is.' That sentence recalled me to the business in hand. Without appearing to notice his look, I recurred to my questions. "'How came you to know that Mr. Clavering was in the city last summer? Did you learn that, too, at the Hoffman House?' "'No.' I ascertained that in quite another way. In short, I have had a communication from London in regard to the matter. From London? Yes. I've a friend there, in my own line of business, who sometimes assists me with a bit of information when requested. But how? You have not had time to write to London and receive an answer since the murder. It is not necessary to write. It is enough for me to telegraph him the name of a person, for him to understand that I want to know everything he can gather in a reasonable length of time about that person. And you sent the name of Mr. Clavering to him? Yes, in cipher. And have received a reply? This morning. I looked towards his desk. It is not there, he said. If you will be kind enough to feel in my breast-pocket, you will find a letter. It was in my hand before he finished his sentence. Excuse my eagerness, I said. This kind of business is new to me, you know. He smiled indulgently at a very old and faded picture hanging on the wall before him. Eagerness is not a fault, only the betrayal of it. But read out what you have there. Let us hear what my friend Brown has to tell us of Mr. Henry Ritchie Clavering, of Portland Place, London. I took the paper to the light, and read as follows. Henry Ritchie Clavering, gentleman, aged forty-three, born in Hertfordshire, England. His father was Charles Clavering, for short time in the army. Mother was Helen Ritchie, of Dumfrieshire, Scotland. She is still living home with H.R.C. in Portland Place, London. H.R.C. is a bachelor, six feet high, squarely built, weight about twelve stone, dark complexion, regular features, eyes dark brown, nose straight, called a handsome man, walks erect and rapidly. In society is considered a good fellow, rather a favourite, especially with ladies. Is liberal, not extravagant, reported to be worth about five thousand pounds per year, and appearances give colour to this statement. Property consists of a small estate in Hertfordshire, and some funds amount not known. Since writing this much, a correspondent sends the following in regard to his history. In forty-six went from uncle's house to Eton. From Eton went to Oxford, graduating in fifty-six. Scholarship good, in 1855 his uncle died, and his father succeeded to the estates. Father died in 57 by a fall from his horse, or a similar accident. Within a very short time H.R.C. took his mother to London to the residence named 
where they have lived to the present time. Travelled considerably in 1860, part of the time was with of Munich, also in party of Vandervoorts from New York. Went as far east as Cairo, went to America in 1875 alone, but at end of three months returned on account of mother's illness. Nothing is known of his movements while in America. From servants learn that he was always a favourite from a boy. More recently has become somewhat taciturn. Towards last of his stay watched the post carefully, especially foreign ones. Posted scarcely anything but newspapers. Has written to Munich. Have seen from waste-paper basket torn envelope directed to Amy Belden, no address. American correspondence mostly in Boston. Two in New York. Names not known, but supposed to be bankers. Brought home considerable luggage and fitted up part of the house as for a lady. This was closed soon afterwards. Left for America two months since. Has been, I understand, travelling in the south. Has telegraphed twice to Portland Place. Is friends here from him, but rarely. Letters received, recently, posted in New York. One by last steamer, posted in F. N. Y. Business here conducted by, in the country of, as charge of the property. Brown. The document fell from my hands. F. New York was a small town near R. Your friend is a trump, I declared. He tells me just what I wanted to know. And taking out my book, I made memoranda of the facts which had most forcibly struck me during my perusal of the communication before me. With the aid of what he tells me, I shall ferret out the mystery of Henry Clavering in a week, see if I do not. "'And how soon,' inquired Mr. Grice, "'may I expect to be allowed to take a hand in the game?' "'As soon as I am reasonably assured I am upon the right track. "'And what will it take to assure you of that?' "'Not much, a certain point settled. "'And hold on, who knows but what I can do that for you?' "'And, looking towards the desk which stood in the corner, "'Mr. Grice asked me if I would be kind enough to open the top drawer.' and bring him the bits of partly burned paper I would find there. Hastily complying, I brought three or four strips of ragged paper, and laid them on the table at his side. Another result of Fobb's researches under the coal on the first day of the inquest, Mr. Grice abruptly explained. You thought the key was all he found. Well, it wasn't. A second turning over of the coal brought these to light, and very interesting they are too. I immediately bent over the torn and discoloured scraps with great anxiety. They were four in number, and appeared at first glance to be mere remnants of a sheet of common writing-paper, torn lengthwise into strips, and twisted up into lighters. But upon closer inspection they showed traces of writing upon one side, and, what was more important still, the presence of one or more drops of spattered blood. This latter discovery was horrible to me, and so overcame me for the moment that I put the scraps down, and, turning towards Mr. Grice, inquired, "'What do you make of them?' "'That is just the question I was going to put to you.' Swallowing my disgust, I took them up again. 
"'They look like the remnants of some old letter,' said I. "'They have that appearance,' Mr. Grice grimly assented. "'A letter which, from the drop of blood observable on the written side, "'must have been lying face up on Mr. Leavenworth's table at the time of the murder. "'Just so. "'And from the uniformity in width of each of these pieces, "'as well as their tendency to curl up when left alone,' must first have been torn into even strips, and then severally rolled up before being tossed into the grate, where they were afterwards found. "'That is all good,' said Mr. Grice. "'Go on.' "'The writing, so far as discernible, is that of a cultivated gentleman. It is not that of Mr. Leavenworth, for I have studied his chirography too much lately, not to know it at a glance.' but it may be hold i suddenly exclaimed have you any mucilage handy i think if i could paste these strips down upon a piece of paper so that they would remain flat i should be able to tell you what i think of them much more easily there is mucilage on the desk signified mr grice procuring it i proceeded to consult the scraps once more for evidence to guide me in their arrangement these were more marked than I expected. The longer and best preserved strip, with its Mr. Haw at the top, showing itself at first blush to be the left-hand margin of the letter, while the machine-cut edge of the next in length presented tokens fully as conclusive of its being the right-hand margin of the same. Selecting these, then, I pasted them down on the piece of paper just at the distance they would occupy if the sheet from which they were torn was of the ordinary commercial note size. Immediately it became apparent first that it would take two other strips of the same width to fill up the space left between them, and secondly that the writing did not terminate at the foot of the sheet, but was carried on to another page. Taking up the third strip, I looked at its edge. It was machine-cut at the top, and showed by the arrangement of its words that it was the margin-strip of a second leaf. Pasting that down by itself, I scrutinised the fourth, and finding it also machine-cut at the top, but not on the side, endeavoured to fit it to the piece already pasted down, but the words would not match. Moving it along to the position it would hold if it were the third strip, I fastened it down, the whole presenting, when completed, the appearance seen on the opposite page. "'Well!' exclaimed Mr. Grice. "'That's business!' Then, as I held it up before his eyes, "'But don't show it to me. Study it yourself, and tell me what you think of it.' "'Well,' said I, "'this much is certain, that it is a letter directed to Mr. Leavenworth from some house, and dated—let's see, that's an H, isn't it? and I pointed to the one letter just discernible on the line under the word house. "'I should think so, but don't ask me. It must be an H. The year is 1875, and this is not the termination of either January or February. Dated then March 1st, 1876, and signed—' Mr. Grice rolled his eyes in anticipatory ecstasy towards the ceiling. "'By Henry Clavering!' I announced without hesitation. Mr. Grice's eyes returned to his swathed finger-ends. "'Hm! How do you know that?' "'Wait a moment, and I'll show you. 
and taking out of my pocket the card which Mr. Clavering had handed me as an introduction at our late interview, I laid it underneath the last line of writing on the second page. One glance was sufficient. Henry Ritchie Clavering on the card, H-Chi, in the same handwriting on the letter. "'Clavering it is,' said he, "'without a doubt.' But I saw he was not surprised. "'And now,' I continued, "'for its general tenor and meaning.' And, commencing at the beginning, I read aloud the words as they came, with pauses at the breaks, something as follows. "'Mr. Hoare, dear, a niece whom you want to who see the love and trust any other man ca beautiful so car she in face for conversation every rose has its rose is no exception ellie as she is car tender as she is pubble of trampling one who trusted heart uh, him to he owes a honour ants if believe her to cruel face what is bull serve yours h chi it reads like a complaint against one of mr leavenworth's nieces i said and started at my own words what is it cried mr gryce what is the matter why said i the fact is i have heard this very letter spoken of it is a complaint against one of mr leavenworth's nieces and it was written by mr clavering and i told him of mr harwell's communication in regard to the matter ah then mr harwell has been talking as he i thought he had forsworn gossip mr harwell and i have seen each other almost daily for the last two weeks i replied it would be strange if he had nothing to tell me and he says he has read a letter written to mr leavenworth by mr clavering yes but the particular words of which he has now forgotten these few here may assist him in recalling the rest I would rather not admit him to a knowledge of the existence of this piece of evidence. I don't believe in letting any one into our confidence whom we can conscientiously keep out. I see you don't, dryly responded Mr. Grice. Not appearing to notice the fling conveyed by these words, I took up the letter once more, and began pointing out such half-formed words in it as I thought we might venture to complete as the haw you see beautiful heart for tramplin pubble serve this done i next proposed the introduction of such others as seemed necessary to the sense as leavenworth after horatio 
sir after dear have with a possible you before a niece thorn after us in the phrase rose has its on after trampling whom after two debt after a you after if me ask after believe beautiful after cruel between the columns of words thus furnished i interposed a phrase or two here and there the whole reading upon its completion as follows house march the first eighteen seventy six mr horatio leavenworth dear sir you have a niece whom you one two who seems worthy the love and trust of any other man ca so beautiful so charming is she in face form and conversation but every rose has its thorn and this rose is no exception lovely as she is charming as she is tender as she is she is capable of trampling on one who trusted her heart a uh, him to whom she owes a debt of honour a uh, nace if you don't believe me ask her to her cruel beautiful face what is her humble servant yours henry ritchie clavering i think that will do said mr gryce its general tenor is evident and that is all we want at this time the whole tone of it is anything but complimentary to the lady it mentions i remarked he must have had or imagined he had some desperate grievance to provoke him to the use of such plain language in regard to one he can still characterize as tender charming and beautiful grievances are apt to lie back of mysterious crimes i think i know what this one was i said but seeing him look up must decline to communicate my suspicion to you for the present my theory stands unshaken and in some degree confirmed and that is all i can say then this letter does not supply the link you wanted no it is a valuable bit of evidence but it is not the link i am in search of just now yet it must be an important clue or eleanor leavenworth would not have been to such pains first to take it in the way she did from her uncle's table and secondly wait what makes you think this is the paper she took or was believed to have taken from mr leavenworth's table on that fatal morning why the fact that it was found together with the key which we know she dropped into the grate and that there are drops of blood on it i shook my head why do you shake your head asked mr gryce because i am not satisfied with your reason for believing this to be the paper taken by her from mr leavenworth's table and why well first because fobbs does not speak of seeing any paper in her hand when she bent over the fire leaving us to conclude that these pieces were in the scuttle of coal she threw upon it which surely you must acknowledge to be a strange place for her to have put a paper she took such pains to gain possession of and secondly for the reason that these scraps were twisted as if they had been used for curl papers or something of that kind a fact hard to explain by your hypothesis the detective's eye stole in the direction of my necktie which was as near as he ever came to a face you are a bright one said he a very bright one i quite admire you mr raymond a little surprised and not altogether pleased with this unexpected compliment 
I regarded him doubtfully for a moment, and then asked, "'What is your opinion upon the matter?' "'Oh, you know I have no opinion. I gave up everything of that kind when I put the affair into your hands. Still, that the letter of which these scraps are the remnant was on Mr. Leavenworth's table at the time of the murder is believed, that upon the body being removed a paper was taken from the table by Miss Eleanor Leavenworth is also believed, that when she found her action had been noticed, and attention called to this paper and the key, she resorted to subterfuge in order to escape the vigilance of the watch that had been set over her, and, partially succeeding in her endeavour, flung the key into the fire from which these same scraps were afterwards recovered, is also known. The conclusion I leave to your judgment. Very well, then said I, rising. We will let conclusions go for the present. My mind must be satisfied in regard to the truth or falsity of a certain theory of mine, for my judgment to be worth much on this or any other matter connected with the affair. And, only waiting to get the address of his subordinate P, in case I should need assistance in my investigations, I left Mr. Grice, and proceeded immediately to the house of Mr. Veeley. End of chapter 22「"'You have never heard, then, the particulars of Mr. Leavenworth's marriage?' It was my partner who spoke. I had been asking him to explain to me Mr. Leavenworth's well-known antipathy to the English race. "'No.' "'If you had, you would not need to come to me for this explanation. But it is not strange you are ignorant of the matter.' I doubt if there are half a dozen persons in existence who could tell you where Horatio Leavenworth found the lovely woman, who afterwards became his wife, much less give you any details of the circumstances which led to his marriage. I am very fortunate, then, in being in the confidence of one who can. What were those circumstances, Mr. Veeley? It will aid you but little to hear. Horatio Leavenworth, when a young man, was very ambitious, so much so that at one time he aspired to marry a wealthy lady of Providence, but, chancing to go to England, he there met a young woman whose grace and charm had such an effect upon him that he relinquished all thoughts of the Providence lady though it was some time before he could face the prospect of marrying the one who had so greatly interested him, as she was not only in humble circumstances, but was encumbered with a child, concerning whose parentage 
the neighbours professed ignorance, and she had nothing to say. But as it is very apt to be the case in an affair like this, love and admiration soon got the better of worldly wisdom. Taking his future in his hands, he offered himself as her husband, when she immediately proved herself worthy of his regard, by entering at once into those explanations he was too much of a gentleman to demand. The story she told was pitiful. She proved to be an American by birth, her father having been a well-known merchant of Chicago. While he lived, her home was one of luxury, but just as she was emerging into womanhood, he died. It was at his funeral she met the man destined to be her ruin. How he came there she never knew. He was not a friend of her father's. It was enough he was there, and saw her, and that in three weeks—don't shudder, she was such a child—they were married. In twenty-four hours she knew what that word meant for her. It meant blows. Everett, I am telling no fanciful story. In twenty-four hours after that girl was married, her husband, coming drunk into the house, found her in his way, and knocked her down. But it was the beginning. Her father's estate, on being settled up, proving to be less than expected, he carried her off to England, where he did not wait to be drunk in order to maltreat her. She was not free from his cruelty night or day. Before she was sixteen she had run the whole gamut of human suffering, and that not at the hands of a coarse common ruffian, but from an elegant, handsome, luxury-loving gentleman, whose taste in dress was so nice he would sooner fling a garment of hers into the fire than see her go into company clad in a manner he did not consider becoming. She bore it till her child was born, then she fled. Two days after the little one saw the light, she rose from her bed, and taking her baby in her arms, ran out of the house. The few jewels she had put into her pocket supported her till she could set up a little shop. As for her husband, she neither saw him nor heard from him from the day she left him till about two weeks before Horatio Leavenworth first met her, when she learned from the papers that he was dead. She was therefore free. But though she loved Horatio Leavenworth with all her heart, she would not marry him. She felt herself forever stained and soiled by the one awful year of abuse and contamination. Nor could he persuade her, not till the death of her child, a month or so after his proposal, did she consent to give him her hand, and what remained of her unhappy life. He brought her to New York, surrounded her with the luxury and every tender care, but the arrow had gone too deep. Two years from the day her child breathed its last, she too died. It was the blow of his life to Horatio Leavenworth. He was never the same man again. Though Mary and Eleanor shortly after entered his home, he never recovered his old light-heartedness. 
money became his idol, and the ambition to make and leave a great fortune behind him modified all his views of life. But one proof remained that he never forgot the wife of his youth, and that was he could not bear to have the word Englishman uttered in his hearing. Mr. Veeley paused, and I rose to go. "'Do you remember how Mrs. Leavenworth looked?' I asked. "'Could you describe her to me?' He seemed a little astonished at my request, but immediately replied, "'She was a very pale woman, not strictly beautiful, but of a contour and expression of great charm. Her hair was brown, her eyes grey, and very wide apart?' He nodded, looking still more astonished. "'How came you to know? Have you seen her picture?' I did not answer that question. On my way downstairs I bethought me of a letter which I had in my pocket for Mr. Veeley's son Fred, and knowing of no surer way of getting it to him that night than by leaving it on the library table, I stepped to the door of that room, which in this house was at the rear of the parlours, and receiving no reply to my knock, opened it and looked in. The room was unlighted, but a cheerful fire was burning in the grate, and by its glow I espied a lady crouching on the hearth, whom at first glance I took for Mrs. Veeley, but upon advancing and addressing her by that name I saw my mistake, for the person before me not only refrained from replying, but, rising at the sound of my voice, revealed a form of such noble proportions that all possibility of its being that of the dainty little wife of my partner fled. "'I see I have made a mistake,' said I. "'I beg your pardon.' I would have left the room, but something in the general attitude of the lady before me restrained me, and, believing it to be Mary Leavenworth, I inquired, "'Can it be this is Miss Leavenworth?' The noble figure appeared to droop. The gently lifted head to fall, and for a moment I doubted if I had been correct in my supposition. Then form and head slowly erected themselves, a soft voice spoke, and I heard a low, "'Yes,' and hurriedly advancing, confronted, not Mary, with her glancing feverish gaze and scarlet trembling lips, but Eleanor, the woman whose faintest look had moved me from the first, the woman whose husband I believed myself to be even then pursuing to his doom. The surprise was too great. I could neither sustain nor conceal it. Stumbling slowly back, I murmured something about having believed it to be her cousin, and then, conscious only of the one wish to fly at presence I dared not encounter in my present mood, turned when her rich, heartful voice rose once more, and I heard, "'You will not leave me without a word, Mr. Raymond, now that chance has thrown us together?' Then, as I came slowly forward, "'Were you so very much astonished to find me here?' "'I do not know. I did not expect,' was my incoherent reply. "'I had heard you were ill, that you went nowhere, that you had no wish to see your friends.' "'I have been ill,' she said. "'But I am better now, and I have come to spend the night with Mrs. Veeley, because I could not endure the stare of the four walls of my room any longer.' This was said without any effort at plaintiveness, but rather as if she thought it necessary to excuse herself for being where she was. 
"'I am glad you did so,' said I. "'You ought to be here all the while. That dreary, lonesome boarding-house is no place for you, Miss Leavenworth. It distresses us all to feel that you are exiling yourself all this time.' "'I do not wish anybody to be distressed,' she returned. "'It is best for me to be where I am. Nor am I altogether alone. There is a child there whose innocent eyes see nothing but innocence in mine.' she will keep me from despair. Do not let my friends be anxious. I can bear it. Then, in a lower tone, there is but one thing which really unnerves me, and that is my ignorance of what is going on at home. Sorrow I can bear, but suspense is killing me. Will you not tell me something of Mary and home? I cannot ask Mrs. Veeley. She is kind, but has no real knowledge of Mary or me nor does she know anything of our estrangement. She thinks me obstinate and blames me for leaving my cousin in her trouble. But you know I could not help it. You know—' Her voice wavered off into a tremble, and she did not conclude. "'I cannot tell you much,' I hastened to reply. "'But whatever knowledge is at my command is certainly yours. Is there anything in particular you wish to know?' "'Yes.' how mary is and whether she is well and composed your cousin's health is good i returned but i fear i cannot say she is composed she is greatly troubled about you you see her often then i am assisting mr harwell in preparing your uncle's book for the press and necessarily am there much of the time my uncle's book the words came in a tone of low horror "'Yes, Miss Leavenworth, it has been thought best to bring it before the world, and—and Mary has set you at the task?' "'Yes.' It seemed as if she could not escape from the horror which this caused. "'How could she? Oh, how could she?' "'She considers herself as fulfilling her uncle's wishes. He was very anxious, as you know, to have the book out by July.' "'Do not speak of it,' she broke in. I cannot bear it. Then, as if she feared she had hurt my feelings by her abruptness, lowered her voice and said, I do not, however, know of any one I should be better pleased to have charged with the task than yourself. With you it will be a work of respect and reverence. But a stranger, oh, I could not have endured a stranger touching it. She was fast falling into her old horror, but rousing herself murmured, I wanted to ask you something. Ah, I know, and she moved so as to face me. I wish to inquire if everything is as before in the house, the servants, the same, and other things. There is a Mrs. Darrell there. I do not know of any other change. Mary does not talk of going away? I think not. But she has visitors? Some one besides Mrs. Darrell to help her bear her loneliness? I knew what was coming, and strove to preserve my composure. Yes, I replied, a few. Would you mind naming them? How low her tones were, but how distinct. Certainly not. Uh, Mrs. Veeley, Mrs. Gilbert, Miss Martin, and, er, uh, uh, Go on, she whispered a gentleman by the name of Clavering. "'You speak that name with evident embarrassment,' she said, 
after a moment of intense anxiety on my part. "'May I inquire why?' Astounded, I raised my eyes to her face. It was very pale, and wore the old look of self-repressed calm I remembered so well. I immediately dropped my gaze. "'Why? Because there are some circumstances surrounding him which have struck me as peculiar.' "'How so?' she asked. "'He appears under two names. To-day it is Clavering. A short time ago it was—' "'Go on.' "'Robins.' Her dress rustled on the hearth. There was a sound of desolation in it. But her voice, when she spoke, was expressionless as that of an automaton. "'How many times has this person, of whose name you do not appear to be certain, been to see Mary?' "'Once.' "'When was it?' "'Last night.' "'Did he stay long?' "'About twenty minutes, I should say.' "'And do you think he will come again?' "'No.' "'Why?' "'He has left the country.' A short silence followed this. I felt her eyes searching my face, but doubt whether, if I had known she held a loaded pistol, I could have looked up at that moment. "'Mr. Raymond,' she at length observed, in a changed tone, "'the last time I saw you, you told me you were going to make some endeavour to restore me to my former position before the world. I did not wish you to do so then, nor do I wish you to do so now. Can you not make me comparatively happy then?' by assuring me you have abandoned, or will abandon, a project so hopeless? "'It is impossible,' I replied with emphasis. "'I cannot abandon it. Much as I grieve to be a source of sorrow to you, it is best you should know that I can never give up the hope of writing you while I live.' She put out her hand in a sort of hopeless appeal, inexpressibly touching to behold in the fast waning firelight, but I was relentless. I should never be able to face the world or my own conscience if, through any weakness of my own, I should miss the blessed privilege of setting the wrong right, and saving a noble woman from unmerited disgrace. And then, seeing she was not likely to reply to this, drew a step nearer, and said, "'Is there not some little kindness I can show you, Miss Leavenworth? Is there no message that you would like taken, or act it would give you pleasure to see performed?' She stopped to think. "'No,' said she, "'I have only one request to make, and that you refuse to grant.' "'For the most unselfish of reasons,' I urged. She slowly shook her head. "'You think so?' Then, before I could reply, "'I could desire one little favour shown me, however.' "'What is that?' "'That if anything should transpire—' If Hannah should be found, or, or my presence required in any way, you would not keep me in ignorance that you will let me know the worst when it comes without fail? I will. And now, good night. Mrs. Veeley is coming back, and you would scarcely wish to be found here by her. No, said I. And yet I did not go but stood watching the firelight flicker on her black dress till the thought of clavering and the duty I had for the morrow struck coldly to my heart, and I turned away towards the door. But at the threshold I paused again and looked back. Oh, the flickering, dying fire-flame! 
oh the crowding clustering shadows oh that drooping figure in their midst with its clasped hands and its hidden face i see it all again i see it as in a dream then darkness falls and in the glare of gas-lighted streets i am hastening along solitary and sad to my lonely home End of chapter 23chapter twenty four of the leavenworth case by anna katherine green this librivox recording is in the public domain chapter twenty four a report followed by smoke oft expectation fails and most oft there where most it promises and oft it hits where hope is coldest and despair most sits all's well that ends well when i told mr gryce i only waited for the determination of one fact to feel justified in throwing the case unreservedly into his hands i alluded to the proving or disproving of the supposition that henry clavering had been a guest at the same watering-place with eleanor leavenworth the summer before when therefore i found myself the next morning with the visitor-book of the hotel union at r in my hands it was only by the strongest effort of will I could restrain my impatience. The suspense, however, was short. Almost immediately I encountered his name, written not half a page below those of Mr. Leavenworth and his nieces, and whatever may have been my emotion at finding my suspicions thus confirmed, I recognised the fact that I was in the possession of a clue which would yet lead to the solving of the fearful problem which had been imposed upon me. Hastening to the telegraph office, I sent a message for the man promised me by Mr. Grice, and, receiving for an answer that he could not be with me before three o'clock, started for the house of Mr. Monell, a client of ours living in R. I found him at home, and, during our interview of two hours, suffered the ordeal of appearing at ease and interested in what he had to say, while my heart was heavy with its first disappointment and my brain on fire with the excitement of the work then on my hands. I arrived at the depot just as the train came in. There was but one passenger for R, a brisk young man, whose whole appearance differed so from the description which had been given me of Q, that I at once made up my mind he could not be the man I was looking for, and was turning away disappointed when he approached and handed me a card on which was inscribed the single character, question mark. Even then I could not bring myself to believe that the slyest and most successful agent in Mr. Grice's employ was before me, till, catching his eye, I saw such a keen, enjoyable twinkle sparkling in its depths that all doubt fled, and, returning his bow with a show of satisfaction, I remarked, "'You are very punctual. I like that.' He gave another short, quick nod. "'Glad, sir, to please you.' Punctuality is too cheap a virtue not to be practised by a man on the lookout for a rise. But what orders, sir? Down train due in ten minutes, no time to spare. Down train? What have we to do with that? I thought you might wish to take it, sir. Mr. Brown, winking expressively at the name, always checks his carpet-bag for home when he sees me coming. But that is your affair. I am not particular. I wish to do what is wisest under the circumstances. "'Go home, then, as speedily as possible.' 
and he gave a third sharp nod, exceedingly businesslike and determined. "'If I leave you, it is with the understanding that you bring your information first to me, that you are in my employ, and in that of no one else for the time being, and that mum is the word, till I give you liberty to speak.' "'Yes, sir. When I work for Brown and Co., I do not work for Smith and Jones. That you can count on.' "'Very well, then. Here are your instructions.' He looked at the paper I handed him, with a certain degree of care, then stepped into the waiting-room and threw it into the stove, saying in a low tone, "'So much in case I should meet with some accident. Have an epileptic fit, or anything of that sort.' "'But—oh, don't worry, I shan't forget. I've a memory, sir. No need of anybody using pen and paper with me.' And laughing in the short, quick way one would expect from a person of his appearance and conversation, he added— "'You'll probably hear from me in a day or so.' And bowing, took his brisk, free way down the street, just as the train came rushing in from the west. My instructions to Q were as follows. 1. To find out on what day, and in whose company, the Mrs. Leavenworth arrived at R. the year before. What their movements had been while there, and in whose society they were oftenest to be seen. Also the date of their departure, and such facts as could be gathered in regard to their habits, etc. 2. Ditto in respect to a Mr. Henry Clavering, fellow-guest and probable friend of said ladies. 3. Name of individual fulfilling the following requirements. Clergyman, Methodist, deceased since last December or thereabouts, who in July of 75 was located in some town not over twenty miles from R. 4. Also name and present whereabouts of a man at that time in service of the above. To say that the interval of time necessary to a proper inquiry into these matters was passed by me in any reasonable frame of mind would be to give myself credit for an equanimity of temper which I unfortunately do not possess. Never have days seemed so long as the two which interposed between my return from R and the receipt of the following letter. Sir, individuals mentioned arrived in R, July 3rd, 1875. Party consisted of four, the two ladies, their uncle, and the girl named Hannah. Uncle remained three days, and then left for a short tour through Massachusetts, gone for two weeks, during which ladies were seen more or less with the gentleman named between us, but not to an extent sufficient to excite gossip or occasion remark, when said gentleman left R abruptly two days after uncle's return. Date July 19th. As to habits of ladies, more or less social. They were always to be seen at picnics, rides, etc., and in the ballroom. M. liked best, E. considered grave, and, towards the last of her stay, moody. It is remembered now that her manner was always peculiar, and that she was more or less shunned by her cousin. However, in the opinion of one girl still to be found at the hotel, she was the sweetest lady that ever breathed. No particular reason for this opinion. Uncle, ladies, and servants left R for New York August 7th, 1875. 2. H. C. arrived at the hotel in R, July 6th, 1875, in company with Mr. and Mrs. Vandervoort, friends of the above. Left July 19th, two weeks from day of arrival. Little to be learned in regard to him. 
remembered as the handsome gentleman who was in the party with the L girls, and that is all. 3. F. A small town some sixteen or seventeen miles from R had for its Methodist minister in July of last year a man who has since died, Samuel Stebbins by name, date of decease, Jan 7th of this year. 4. Name of man in employ of SS at that time is Timothy Cook. He has been absent, but returned to P two days ago. Can be seen if required. Aha! I cried aloud at this point, in my sudden surprise and satisfaction. Now we have something to work upon. And sitting down, I penned the following reply. TC wanted by all means. Also any evidence going to prove that H.C. and E.L. were married at the house of Mr. S. on any day of July or August last. Next morning came the following telegram. T.C. on the road. Remembers a marriage. Will be with you by 2 p.m. At three o'clock that same day, I stood before Mr. Grice. I'm here to make my report, I announced. The nicker of a smile passed over his face and he gazed, for the first time, at his bound-up finger-ends, with a softening aspect which must have done them good. "'I'm ready,' said he. "'Mr. Grice,' I began, "'do you remember the conclusion we came to at our first interview in this house?' "'I remember the one you came to.' "'Well, well,' I acknowledged, a little peevishly, "'the one I came to, then, it was this.' that if we should find to whom Eleanor Leavenworth felt she owed her best duty and love, we should discover the man who murdered her uncle. And do you imagine you have done this? I do. His eyes stole a little nearer my face. Well, that is good. Go on. When I undertook this business of clearing Eleanor Leavenworth from suspicion, I resumed, it was with the premonition that this person would prove to be her lover, but I had no idea he would prove to be her husband. Mr. Grice's gaze flashed like lightning to the ceiling. What? he ejaculated with a frown. The lover of Eleanor Leavenworth is likewise her husband, I repeated. Mr. Clavering holds no lesser connection to her than that. How have you found that out? demanded Mr. Grice in a harsh tone that argued disappointment or displeasure. "'That I will not take time to state. The question is not how I became acquainted with a certain thing, but is what I assert in regard to it true. If you will cast your eye over this summary of events, gleaned by me from the lives of these two persons, I think you will agree with me that it is.' And I held up before his eyes the following. During the two weeks commencing July 6th of the year 1875 and ending July 19th of the same year, Henry R. Clavering of London and Eleanor Leavenworth of New York were guests of the same hotel. Fact proved by the visitor book of the Hotel Union at R. New York. They were not only guests of the same hotel, but are known to have held more or less communication with each other. Fact proved by such servants now employed in R., as were in the hotel at that time. July 19th. Mr. Clavering left R. abruptly, a circumstance that would not be considered remarkable if Mr. Leavenworth, whose violent antipathy to Englishmen as husbands is publicly known, had not just returned from a journey. July 30th. 
Mr. Clavering was seen in the parlour of Mr. Stebbins, the Methodist minister at F, a town about sixteen miles from R, where he was married to a lady of great beauty, proved by Timothy Cook, a man in the employ of Mr. Stebbins, who was called in from the garden to witness the ceremony and sign a paper supposed to be a certificate. July 31st. Mr. Clavering takes steamer for Liverpool, proved by newspapers of that date. September. Eleanor Leavenworth in her uncle's house in New York, conducting herself as usual but pale of face and preoccupied in manner, proved by servants then in her service. Mr. Clavering in London, watches the United States mails with eagerness, but receives no letters, fits up room elegantly as for a lady, proved by secret communication from London. November. Miss Leavenworth still in uncle's house. No publication of her marriage ever made. Mr. Clavering in London. Shows signs of uneasiness. The room prepared for lady closed. Proved as above. January 17th, 1876. Mr. Clavering, having returned to America, engages room at Hoffman House, New York. March 1st or 2nd. Mr. Leavenworth receives a letter signed by Henry Clavering, in which he complains of being ill-used by one of that gentleman's nieces. A manifest shade falls over the family at this time. March 4th. Mr. Clavering, under a false name, inquires at the door of Mr. Leavenworth's house for Miss Eleanor Leavenworth, proved by Thomas. "'March 4th!' exclaimed Mr. Grice at this point. "'That was the night of the murder.' "'Yes. The Mr. Leroy Robbins, said to have called that evening, was none other than Mr. Clavering. March 19th. Miss Mary Leavenworth, in a conversation with me, acknowledges that there is a secret in the family, and is just upon the point of revealing its nature when Mr. Clavering enters the house. Upon his departure she declares her unwillingness ever to mention the subject again. Mr. Grice slowly waved the paper aside. "'And from these facts you draw the inference that Eleanor Leavenworth is the wife of Mr. Clavering?' "'I do.' "'And that being his wife, it would be natural for her to conceal anything she knew likely to criminate him, always supposing Clavering himself had done anything criminal?' "'Of course. "'Which latter supposition you now proposed to justify?' which latter supposition is left for us to justify a peculiar gleam shot over mr grice's somewhat abstracted countenance then you have no new evidence against mr clavering i should think the fact just given of his standing in the relation of unacknowledged husband to the suspected party was something no positive evidence as to his being the assassin of mr leavenworth i mean I was obliged to admit I had none which he would consider positive. But I can show the existence of motive, and I can likewise show it was not only possible but probable he was in the house at the time of the murder. "'Ah, you can!' cried Mr. Grice, rousing a little from his abstraction. The motive was the usual one of self-interest. Mr. Leavenworth stood in the way of Eleanor's acknowledging him as a husband and he must therefore be put out of the way. Weak. Motives for murders are sometimes weak. 
the motive for this was not too much calculation was shown for the arm to have been nerved by anything short of the most deliberate intention founded upon the deadliest necessity of passion or avarice avarice one should never deliberate upon the causes which have led to the destruction of a rich man without taking into account that most common passion of the human race but let us hear what you have to say of mr clavering's presence in the house at the time of the murder i related what thomas the butler had told me in regard to mr clavering's call upon miss leavenworth that night and the lack of proof which existed as to his having left the house when supposed to do so that is worth remembering said mr gryce at the conclusion valueless as direct evidence it might prove of great value as corroborative then in a graver tone he went on to say mr raymond are you aware that in all this you have been strengthening the case against eleanor leavenworth instead of weakening it i could only ejaculate in my sudden wonder and dismay you have shown her to be secret sly and unprincipled capable of wronging those to whom she was most bound her uncle and her husband you put it very strongly said i conscious of a shocking discrepancy between this description of eleanor's character and all that i had preconceived in regard to it no more so than your own conclusions from this story warrant me in doing then as i sat silent murmured low and as if to himself if the case was dark against her before it is doubly so with this supposition established of her being the woman secretly married to mr clavering and yet i protested unable to give up my hope without a struggle you do not cannot believe the noble-looking eleanor guilty of this horrible crime no he slowly said you might as well know right here what i think about her i believe eleanor leavenworth to be an innocent woman you do then what i cried swaying between joy at this admission and doubt as to the meaning of his former expressions remains to be done mr gryce quietly responded why nothing but to prove your supposition a false one end of chapter twenty four chapter twenty five of the leavenworth case by anna catherine green this librivox recording is in the public domain chapter twenty five timothy cook look here upon this picture and on this hamlet i stared at him in amazement i doubt if it will be so very difficult said he then in a sudden burst where is the man cook he is below with q that was a wise move let us see the boys have them up stepping to the door i called them i expected of course you would want to question them said i coming back in another moment the spruce q and the shock-headed cook entered the room 
"'Ah,' said Mr. Grice, directing his attention at the latter in his own whimsical, non-committal way, "'this is the deceased Mr. Stebbins' hired man, is it? Well, you look as though you could tell the truth.' "'I usually calculate to do that thing, sir, at all events. I was never called a liar, as I can remember.' "'Of course not, of course not,' returned the affable detective then without any further introduction what was the first name of the lady you saw married in your master's house last summer bless me if i know i don't think i heard sir but you recollect how she looked as well as if she were my own mother no disrespect to the lady sir if you know her he made haste to add glancing hurriedly at me what i mean is she was so handsome I could never forget the look of her sweet face if I lived a hundred years. Can you describe her? Oh, I don't know, sirs. She was tall and grand-looking, had the brightest eyes and the whitest hand, and smiled in a way to make even a common man like me wish he had never seen her. Would you know her in a crowd? I would know her anywhere. Very well. Now— tell us all you can about that marriage well sirs it was something like this i had been in mr stebbins employ about a year when one morning as i was hoeing the garden i saw a gentleman walk rapidly up the road to our gate and come in i noticed him particularly because he was so fine-looking unlike anybody in f and indeed unlike anybody i had ever seen for that matter but i shouldn't have thought much about that if there hadn't come along not five minutes after a buggy with two ladies in it which stopped at our gate too i saw they wanted to get out so i went and held their horse for them and they got down and went into the house did you see their faces no sir not then they had veils on very well go on i hadn't been to work long before i heard someone calling my name and looking up saw mr stebbin standing in the doorway beckoning i went to him and he said i want you tim wash your hands and come into the parlour i'd never been asked to do that before and it struck me all of a heap but i did what he asked and was so taken aback at the looks of the lady i saw standing on the floor with the handsome gentleman that i stumbled over a stool and made a great racket and didn't know much where i was or what was going on till i heard mr stebbins say man and wife and then it came over me in a hot kind of way that it was a marriage i was seeing timothy cook stopped to wipe his forehead as if overcome with the very recollection and mr grice took the opportunity to remark you say there were two ladies now where was the other one at this time she was there sir but i didn't mind much about her i was so taken up with the handsome one and the way she had a smiling when any one looked at her i never saw the beat i felt a quick thrill go through me can you remember the colour of her hair or eyes no sir i had a feeling as if she wasn't dark and that is all i know but you remember her face yes sir mr grice here whispered to me to procure two pictures which i would find in a certain drawer in his desk and set them up in different parts of the room unbeknown to the man you have before said pursued mr grice 
that you have no remembrance of her name. Now, how was that? Weren't you called upon to sign the certificate?' "'Yes, sir, but I am most ashamed to say it. I was in a sort of maze, and didn't hear much, and only remember it was a Mr. Clavering she was married to, and that some one called some one else Elner, or something like that. I wish I hadn't been so stupid, sir, if it would have done you any good.' "'Tell us about the signing of the certificate,' said Mr. Grice. "'Well, sir, there isn't much to tell. Mr. Stebbins asked me to put my name down in a certain place on a piece of paper he pushed towards me, and I put it down there. That is all.' "'Was there no other name there when you wrote yours?' "'No, sir. Afterwards Mr. Stebbins turned towards the other lady, who, who now came forward and asked her if she wouldn't please sign it too, and she said yes.' I came very quickly and did so. And you didn't see her face then? No, sir. Her back was to me when she threw by her veil, and I only saw Mr. Stebbins staring at her as she stooped, with a kind of wonder on his face, which made me think she might have been something worth looking at, too. But I didn't see her myself. Well, what happened then? I don't know, sir. I went stumbling out of the room. I didn't see anything more. "'Where were you when the ladies went away?' "'In the garden, sir. I'd gone back to my work.' "'You saw them, then. Was the gentleman with them?' "'No, sir. That was the queer part of it all. They went back as they came, and so did he. And in a few minutes Mr. Stebbins came out where I was, and told me I was to say nothing about what I had seen, for it was a secret.' "'Were you the only one in the house who knew anything about it? "'Weren't there any women around?' "'No, sir. Miss Stebbins had gone to the sewing circle.' I had by this time some faint impression of what Mr. Grice's suspicions were, and in arranging the pictures had placed one, that of Eleanor on the mantelpiece, and the other, which was an uncommonly fine photograph of Mary, in plain view on the desk.' but Mr. Cook's back was as yet towards that part of the room, and, taking advantage of the moment, I returned and asked him if that was all he had to tell us about this matter. "'Yes, sir.' "'Then,' said Mr. Grice, with a glance at Q, "'isn't there something you can give Mr. Cook in payment for his story? Look around, will you?' Q nodded, and moved towards a cupboard in the wall at the side of the mantelpiece. Mr. Cook followed him with his eyes, as was natural, when, with a sudden start, he crossed the room, and, pausing before the mantelpiece, looked at the picture of Eleanor, which I had put there, gave a low grunt of satisfaction or pleasure, looked at it again, and walked away. I felt my heart leap into my throat, and, moved by what impulse of dread or hope I cannot say, turned my back, when suddenly I heard him give vent to a startled exclamation, followed by the words, "'Why!' "'Here she is! This is her, sirs!' And turning around saw him hurrying towards us, with Mary's picture in his hands. I do not know, as I was greatly surprised. I was powerfully excited, as well as conscious of a certain whirl of thought, and an unsettling of old conclusions that was very confusing. But surprised? No, Mr. Grice's manner had too well prepared me. "'This the lady who was married to Mr. Clavering, my good man? "'I guess you are mistaken,' cried the detective, in a very incredulous tone. 
mistaken? Didn't I say I would know her anywhere? This is the lady, if she is the President's wife herself.' And Mr. Cook leaned over it with a devouring look that was not without its element of homage. "'I am very much astonished,' Mr. Grice went on, winking at me in a slow diabolical way which in another mood would have aroused my fiercest anger. "'Now, if you had said the other lady was the one,' pointing to the picture on the mantelpiece, "'I shouldn't have wondered.' "'She? I never saw that lady before. But this one? Would you mind telling me her name, sirs?' "'If what you say is true, her name is Mrs. Clavering.' "'Clavering? Yes, that was his name.' "'And a very lovely lady.' said Mr. Grice. "'Morris, haven't you found anything yet?' Q, for answer, brought forward glasses and a bottle. But Mr. Cook was in no mood for liquor. I think he was struck with remorse, for looking from the picture to Q, and from Q to the picture, he said, "'If I have done this lady wrong by my talk, I'll never forgive myself. You told me I would help her to get her rights. If you have deceived me—' "'Oh, I haven't deceived you.' broke in Q in his short, sharp way. "'Ask that gentleman there if we are not all interested in Mrs. Clavering getting her due.' He had designated me, but I was in no mood to reply. I longed to have the man dismissed, that I might inquire the reason of the great complacency which I now saw overspreading Mr. Grice's frame to his very finger-ends. "'Mr. Cook needn't be concerned,' remarked Mr. Grice. If he will take a glass of warm drink to fortify him for his walk, I think he may go to the lodgings Mr. Morris has provided for him, without fear. Give the gent a glass, and let him mix for himself." But it was a full ten minutes before we were delivered of the man and his vain regrets. Mary's image had called up every latent feeling in his heart and I could but wonder over a loveliness capable of swaying the low as well as the high. But at last he yielded to the seductions of the now wily Q, and departed. Left alone with Mr. Grice, I must have allowed some of the confused emotions which filled my breast to become apparent on my countenance, for after a few minutes of ominous silence he exclaimed very grimly, and yet with a latent touch of that complacency I had before noticed, this discovery rather upsets you, doesn't it? Well, it don't me, shutting his mouth like a trap. I expected it. Your conclusions must differ very materially from mine, I returned, or you would see that this discovery alters the complexion of the whole affair. It does not alter the truth. What is the truth? Mr. Grice's very legs grew thoughtful. His voice sank to its deepest tone. "'Do you very much want to know?' "'Want to know the truth? What else are we after?' "'Then,' said he, "'to my notion, the complexion of things has altered, but very much for the better. As long as Eleanor was believed to be the wife, her action in this matter was accounted for.' but the tragedy itself was not. Why should Eleanor, or Eleanor's husband, wish the death of a man whose bounty they believed would end with his life? But with Mary the heiress proved the wife. 
I tell you, Mr. Raymond, it all hangs together now. You must never, in reckoning up an affair of murder like this, forget who it is that most profits by the deceased man's death. But Eleanor's silence, her concealment of certain proofs and evidences in her own breast, how will you account for that? I can imagine a woman devoting herself to the shielding of a husband from the consequences of crime, but a cousin's husband never. Mr. Grice put his feet very close together, and softly grunted. "'Then you still think Mr. Clavering the assassin of Mr. Leavenworth?' I could only stare at him in my sudden doubt and dread. "'Still think,' I repeated. "'Mr. Clavering, the murderer of Mr. Leavenworth.' "'Why, what else is there to think? You don't—you can't suspect Eleanor of having deliberately undertaken to help her cousin out of a difficulty by taking the life of their mutual benefactor no said mr gryce no i do not think eleanor leavenworth had any hand in the business then who i began and stopped lost in the dark vista that was opening before me who why who but the one whose past deceit and present necessity demanded his death as a relief who but the beautiful money-loving man-deceiving goddess i leapt to my feet in my sudden horror and repugnance do not mention the name you are wrong but do not speak the name excuse me said he but it will have to be spoken many times and we may as well begin here and now who then but mary leavenworth or, if you like it better, Mrs. Henry Clavering. Are you so much surprised? It has been my thought from the beginning. End of chapter 25「What if you could have a career where the opportunities are as vast as our nation? where it's not about mission statements, but a shared mission. At U.S. Customs and Border Protection, we go beyond to protect more than borders, from ship to shore, air to ground, cities to local communities. CBP agents and officers are keeping people safe. Join U.S. Customs and Border Protection and go beyond for something far greater than yourself. Learn more at cbp.gov careers.